Welcome to Your Voice First Podcast, Flow State Edition, a podcast designed to help you focus on finding your voice. And I'm your host, Sweets, here to provide the voice talks for your work. So here's how this podcast works. I'll provide 30 minutes of uninterrupted voice talks, after which point, I'll start talking again, which will be a reminder for you to stand up, stretch, maybe point your eyes at something other than a screen. Just take a quick break. After the five minutes are up, I'll provide another 30 minutes of voice talks. Hopefully, by the end of this show, I've helped you accomplish 60 minutes of deep focused work. Credit for this podcast format goes to Bobby Light in the Flow State podcast. I'm deploying a simple smart contract for Alexa for musicians. First steps. One, open Ethereum Remix. Two, switch MetaMask to the Mumbai testnet on Polygon. Three, Initialize a new smart contract called Alexa for musicians.soul. Four, create a new state variable called musicians, which will be stored on the blockchain. Five, create an external function, create new musician, that adds a musician to the Polygon and Ethereum blockchains. For our first 30 minutes of voice talks, we have three speakers from the voice talk series. The first is Wally Brill. After Wally is Mandy Chan on the design or on the engineering side. Start off with storytelling, go into engineering. And after Mandy Chan is Noel Silver, who ends with accessibility. All of these talks are provided by Voice Talks. Hi, I'm Wally Brill from the Conversation Design Team at Google. For quite a while now, Minju Kim, Kate Berman, and I have been helping developers create great storytelling and gaming experiences for Google Assistant on smart displays. Along the way, we've learned a lot about what does and doesn't work. So here are some things to keep in mind when you're designing and developing interactive games and stories. Number one, set expectations in the introduction. To make it easy for the user to engage with your experience, your introduction should provide instructions for the interaction and set clear expectations. For games, use the opening as a kind of tutorial to explain the object of the game and how it's played. But remember, the goal of the user is to get started playing quickly, so keep that introduction short, ideally less than a minute or so. In the case of interactive stories, tell the user how long the experience is likely to be. This approach might be as simple as a labeled description in the GUI. Also, be sure to let them know what to expect when they're asked for responses during the narrative. A natural language interface opens lots of creative avenues for design, but it also means there's a greater initial responsibility to articulate the goals of the interaction right from the beginning. Number two, find the balance between touch and voice interactions. Now, smart displays are designed to be used hands-free, and in the majority of cases, we assume that voice is the primary mode of interaction. In general, anything that a user can accomplish through touch should be able to be done through voice as well. Consider a kid asking for a bedtime story from their bed or somebody playing a game while cooking with messy hands. Leveraging voice as an interface provides real value to our users, but users also appreciate fast interactions. Reading and tapping can sometimes be faster than listening and speaking, and for some games, touch may be the primary interaction modality. If gameplay would be much easier for the user with tapping, hey, guide them to use touch. Wherever possible, though, make sure the interactions are available through voice as well. Number three, keep the TTS, or text-to-speech, brief. Text-to-speech, or computer-generated voices, have improved exponentially in the last few years, but they aren't perfect. 
Through user testing, we've learned that users, especially kids, don't like listening to long TTS messages. Of course, some content, like interactive stories, shouldn't be reduced. But for games, try to keep your script simple. Wherever possible, leverage the power of the visual medium and show don't tell. Or consider providing a skip button on the screen so that users can read and move forward without waiting until the TTS is finished. In many cases, the TTS and text on a screen won't always need to mirror each other. For example, the TTS may say, Great job. Let's move to the next question. What's the name of the big red dog? And the text on the screen might simply say, What is the name of the big red dog? Number four, consider first time and returning users. Frequent users don't need to hear the same TTS instructions repeatedly. Optimize the experience for returning users. If it's a user's first time, try to explain the full context. If they revisit your action, acknowledge their return with a welcome back message and try to shorten or taper the TTS. If you notice that the users return more than three or four times, try to get to the point as quickly as possible. Now here's an example of tapering the instructions for different users for a word game. Instructions for the first time user. Just say words you can make from the letters provided. Are you ready to begin? For a returning user. Make up words from the jumbled letters. Ready? And for a frequent user. Are you ready to play? Number five, open the mic properly. The microphone needs to open after every direct question because by asking a question, you're explicitly inviting the user to respond. Needing to say a wake word to open the mic is not intuitive to users in the middle of gameplay and could leave them confused, resulting in missed or repeated utterances and errors. Allow the user to respond as quickly as possible after a question has been asked by opening the mic immediately. Any language which cues the user to respond should be at the end of the prompt, just before the mic opens. This approach prevents the user from attempting to respond while the mic is closed, which causes frustration and creates errors. For example, I have red, green, or blue. Which would you like? As opposed to, Which color would you like? I have red, green, or blue. Number six, emphasize questions. One main difference between written and spoken language is that written language is persistent. It remains on the page where it can easily be reread if missed. Because conversation is linear and ephemeral, it's easy to miss when a question is being asked. Make the question clear so that users can understand and respond. Now, there are a few different ways to do this. There could be a change in background music or mood on the screen. Or you could add a short sound or ear con before the question's asked. If you're putting the questions on screen, they should be visible while the TTS is playing. Sometimes the player may want to skip ahead by reading the question and using touch to move forward. Number seven, prepare for no match errors and edge cases. We recommend escalating error handling and context specific prompting to give users multiple opportunities to re-engage when there's a choice to be made or a question answered. At each choice point of your experience, determine if a user response is required or if you can elegantly move users forward without hearing their choice. In an escalating error strategy, say the initial question is, You can have red, green, or blue. Which color would you like? If there's a no match where the user's response isn't understood, standard practice would be a rapid reprompt, like, Which color was that? If there's another no match, the next response would give a little more context. Would you like red, green, or blue? If they still don't respond with something the system can recognize, you might just move them forward to keep them in the game or story. Let's go with red this time. You could also direct them to use buttons on the screen to make their choice. For situations where the user doesn't respond to a question, the mic will close after a predetermined number of seconds, requiring the user to use touch input. Number eight, support strongly recommended intents. There are some commonly used intents which enhance the user experience. If your action doesn't support them, users might get frustrated. Here's a list. Exit or quit closes the action. Repeat or say that again repeats the immediately preceding content. This should be available everywhere. 
Play again allows the user to start over. This intent gives users an opportunity to re-engage with their favorite experiences. Help provides more detailed instructions to users who may be lost. Depending on the type of action, this may need to be context specific. Remember to return users to where they left off in gameplay after a help message plays. Pause or resume allows the user to stop and continue the experience. Provide a visual indication that the game has been paused and provide both visual and voice options to resume. Skip moves to the next decision point. Home or menu moves to the home or main menu of an action. Now having a visual affordance for this is a great idea. Without visual cues, it's hard for users to know that they can navigate through voice even when it's supported. Go back moves to the previous page in an interactive story. Number nine, ensure legibility and readability. The smart display is a stationary device and it can be used from a distance in many cases. We recommend using bigger fonts to ensure legibility, at minimum 32 point for primary text and 24 point for secondary text. Also, using negative space properly may reduce visual clutter. If there's not enough space between the elements, they become hard to read and demand additional effort. Put some breathing room around the object. We recommend putting a 40 pixel margin at the edge of the screen. Number 10, provide visual feedback. When it takes a lot of time to execute a user's request, provide them with proper visual feedback. Instead of using a simple spinner, try to be transparent about what's happening. How much time remains to complete the task? How much of the content has been loaded? What's happening in the system? Also, be sure to give immediate touch feedback to users when they press buttons. It can easily prevent errors caused by double tapping. And finally, number 11, reduce cognitive load. Your screen can help reduce the cognitive load by showing compact information in an organized way. Keep the content on the screen clear, concise, and scannable with the most important information first. Display prompts may need to be a condensed version of the spoken prompts and placed in the top or middle of the screen. Show any responses in suggestion chips at the bottom. And if you decide to use an icon button instead of a text button, the icon should be extra clear so that users can execute the button via voice without hesitation. So, there you have it. Our top suggestions for making your interactive games and stories amazing experiences that people will want to use over and over again. We can't wait to see what you'll create next. Thanks for watching. Thanks, Sylvia. I'm very excited to be here on Voice Talks today as a part of this inspiring group of women. My name is Mandy Chan, and I'm a developer advocate in the Google Assistant team. It's been awesome to hear everyone talk about voice on mobile this episode. As an Android developer, you can connect the helpfulness of Google Assistant to your existing Android app through AppActions. AppActions enables you to service critical features of your Android app to users full voice. It also provides a more natural way for users to directly access your app's content. Speaking about Android developers who build AppActions, I'm happy to introduce Elisa, an Android developer herself, to the show. Welcome, Elisa. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and who you are? Thank you, Mandy. I'm happy to be here. I'm an Android developer at Explicity, which is a tech creative agency. And I am also a Google developer expert for the Google Assistant. That's awesome. And you mentioned you are a GDE. Can you tell us a bit about uh, what a GDE is and what they do? The GDE program is a global network of technology experts that are very active in the community. And we really appreciate of our GDE who help support and grow our developer community over the years, like yourself. And can you tell us a bit about your experience as an Android developer building for the Google Assistant? And what prompted you into this voice space in, in your projects? Uh, building for Android and building for a voice is actually very different. Um, people don't talk with if and else. So when you start building for voice, you have to rewire your brain. With, of course, great challenges comes great fun. And that's how I started building for both because I enjoyed very much. And when I first started, 
um, the possibility of connecting the two platforms was just not there yet. But I, I think that the marriage of those two actually has great benefits. Yeah, I think building voice is definitely um, different for, for a lot of the developers. It doesn't matter if you come from web or mobile. And, but for the end user, the experience itself is pretty natural. Uh, it's just conversational. So what were some of the tools and resources you, you used to get started on building your first app actions? I use the recommendation a lot. And I also use the codelabs.google website. And of course, Stack Overflow has been a very loyal friend, no matter what you build. Yeah, Stack Overflow is a great resources for getting help from the community, like the GDEs, and including our team, the developer relation team. We are actively there uh, helping and answering different questions that um, our developer community they have. And so, so with all this experience you have in, as an Android developer, can you share your, your thoughts or ideas on what use cases stand out to you for, for voiceification and, and will really benefit the, the mobile end users? I don't remember where, but I read somewhere that if the user needs more than three taps to perform their action, it's actually a good use case for voiceification. And I'm sure that there are exceptions to that, but I think that overall is a good rule to have. In general, um, our lives have got so busy that I think that everyone appreciates a good hands-free experience. And we should never forget that not everyone has a good eyesight or two arms. So people with different impairments are actually um, the ones that can benefit the most from this. I, I agree with you. Um, when the voice experiment is done correctly, it's a magical experience in both scenarios that you just mentioned. Uh, speaking of improvements for the end users, we would love to also know um, for the developers like you, uh, what improvements you might want to see in the app actions? To answer that, we need to keep in mind that the app actions have been a very new feature. And I've seen great improvement during the last year. And when I first started, for instance, about a year and a half ago, it wasn't possible to give synonyms. And I think that for voice, this is actually crucial. So if you wanted your user to be able to order warm coffee and a hot coffee, that was not quite possible. Or it was possible, but not like it would give you some headaches. Um, so now this is actually very easy. You can just provide an array and everything is done. Uh, some more improvements that I would like to see is mostly the documentation. It's, it got improved, but not that much yet. So finding some stuff, for instance, and navigating through that um, can still be very time consuming. The last improvement that I would like to see is about testing and making it easier. Because right now, um, you first need to sign up as a developer. Then you need to upload your bundle, and then you can use the app actions tester. And the first two steps might sound very easy for people, including myself, but we need to keep in mind that the Google Play payment doesn't accept payments from all of the countries. So a lot of people that want to get started with that actually can't because they can't sign up as developers. And for the third one, the app actions um, test tool, I think that it's good, but there is still some room for improvement. I love all this feedback. Um, I will definitely share them with our team to keep improving the developer experience, um, whether that's documentation, sample, or tooling. Lastly, in honor of this incredible um, episode to celebrate International Women Days and our achievements, maybe you can share a bit um, about maybe one woman in, in your career that who has inspired you and support you. It would be unfair to many to just say one name. Um, I think that, first of all, it's all of the developer advocates who inspired me from very early on in my career. And some of them, including you, were actually there to help me later on. And um, throughout the years, I think that the biggest motivation and inspiration that I found was within the Android community. It's a really unique feeling because an achievement of each one of us is actually celebrated by all. Those are pretty amazing ladies. And lastly, but definitely not least, it's going to be Amanda Cavallaro, who is also a Google Assistant GDE. And somehow we just find a way to motivate each other always. 
Right. I remember Amanda. I think Amanda is actually uh, one of the existing GD who, who refer and recommended you to our existing GD program. So we, we all know having career support and inspiration is so critical for, for anyone in, in any career. So personally, for me, I, I'm also a strong believer in giving back. Um, I got into this space in 2016, and at the time, there's already a few few role models in, in this space. And one of them, um, she was a conversational designer at Google at the time, and she encouraged me to apply for Google, and that's how, how I get to where I am. Sometimes it's helpful to have other seeds in you, what you see in yourself. And I, I really like one quote called um, Empower Woman, Empowers Woman. Um, I think every one of us in this space, um, we should look around and see uh, how you can help them. Doesn't matter if it's resources or connections. Um, you might ne you never know what impact you would have made for someone else in this space who just started out. I like to think that way as well. And every action is like throwing a pebble in the water. So you never know who those ripples are actually going to touch. Yes, I like that metaphor. Um, Elisa, it's been fantastic to check with you and get your insights as an Android developer, how you build for app actions. And we are excited to see what you build next. Thank you, Mandy. Bye. Back to you, Sylvia. Hi, and thank you so much for having me. Uh, yes, my name is Noelle Silver. And I am uh, super excited to be here and very grateful to have the opportunity to share my journey in voice technology with you. It has been an incredible ride and it all really started actually quite a long time ago. Uh, my son, as you can see here, my son Max um, on the screen holding the heart, uh, he was born with Down syndrome and it really as a technologist, I instantly started looking for ways for me to help make the world more accessible to him. Um, but interestingly enough, in 2014, uh, my dad was actually in a horrible car accident, got a traumatic brain injury, and he too started really needing the world to evolve a bit to make it easier for him because he was no longer in a space where he could use a smartphone or a keyboard or a mouse in the traditional sense. And it just so happened that I had just joined the Alexa team at that time, and it was an, an incredible time because I didn't know really much about how to use voice as maybe some of you, right? Just getting into voice for the first time back then. And I wanted to figure out how could I use this to help the people that I cared about and maybe to help my customers or, you know, the organizations that I was working for. And so one of the things that, um, of course, I started to do was just be very vocal about my journey. But before I do, I always like to mention how important it is to really understand what we have at our fingertips, right? I was, you know, my dad was nice enough to raise me on the golden age of science fiction. And so I learned at a very young age what it meant to talk to a computer, right? I saw it happening on the screen and read it happening in books. And then now I have the opportunity to actually make that a reality. But as these uh, capabilities become more available to us, we really have to think about, right, what we're going to do with this. I always think about that quote, um, with great power comes great, you might know this one, <laughs> responsibility, right? It, it's such an incredible time for us to have all of these tools and technologies available to us, whether we're deep in the technology or whether we're just getting started. And it's really important for us to think, how are we going to use these powers <laughs> that we've now acquired? How are we going to use these tools? So I always like us to set an intention for how we're going to use it. Let's think you know, ethically and responsibly about how this technology can serve as many people as possible. So once I do that and I kind of set my intention about, all right, how can I help the world? And in my case, right, my dad and my son really drove my interest in this space. But then, you know, I'm a technologist, I work for companies. So I started thinking about how do brands do this? And one of the things I'll tell you, um, a very quick anecdote about how I got started, my very first skill, and actually it was the first five skills because, you know, I just kept building and building until one took. <laughs> um, and, and part of that building process 
really included me figuring out what I wanted to give the world, right? What do I as a technologist want to build? And many of us technologists do this, right? We think, what can I do to change the world with artificial intelligence or change the world with voice technology and a voice user interface? But then the very next thing I wanted to do was then see if the world actually was looking for what I wanted to build. And so I went onto Google and actually literally went and did a trend analysis, right? I looked at Google and said, all right, Google, who's looking for what? And it just so happened that what I was passionate and continue to be passionate about at the time was mindfulness, kindness, leadership, random acts of kindness. And I started and I went to Google, I searched trends. They were all trending. I believe they are continuing to trend to this day. Thank goodness. <laughs> and I built my voice applications directly to what my end users were asking for. And I felt that that was like, I didn't mean, I wasn't intentional. I didn't say, oh, let me go research my, you know, like I, I'm a technologist. I just wanted to build. But that small step I took to understanding more about my users ended up really catapulting my skills. I ended up uh, in that first year, I built over a hundred skills and gained over a million unique users of those applications. So, and, and I think much of that was because I started looking to solve problems they had with passion that, that aligned to the passions that I had as a technologist. Now, fast forward into some of my more advanced skills. As I started building more advanced multimodal capabilities, I started working with a lot more brands. And in those brand conversations, I realized that there was something that, um, it was kind of like gold waiting to be used to build a multimodal or voice experience. And that is really in, let's say you're a business and you have a website or you have a mobile app. You can actually go in and granted, I'm a technologist, so I tend to look, I look for data-driven approaches to things. That's why I went to trends to look it up. But I went and I want my, you know, if I'm on a, if I have a website or I have a mobile app, I go and look at the data that's in those two places and I find out what are my people looking at? What are my customers looking for? What are they trying to do? Um, I call it click trails, right? I'm looking for what are the activities they do most often. Then I cross-reference the most common things they're trying to do with the things that are the hardest to do, right? How many clicks does it take for them to get there? And oftentimes I say, you know, if it takes more than five clicks, that's too long, especially if they try to do it every day, I can make that a voice application. I can bubble that up to a top level intent and they could just ask for it. And it's not like I didn't build anything brand new. I didn't create anything from scratch. I took something they were already asking for and made it accessible to them with their voice. And honestly, I've had people say, oh my gosh, it's like magic. <laughs> and that's how I know I'm successful is when what I build in these voice applications seems like magic to the users that end up using them. Um, and so after that, I, I got very excited about how do I build more of these skills that align with what companies want to give to the world and users really need. And But many of us, of course, may just want to find out how to get started, right? How to actually use these tools to start building. And what I ended up doing, um, again, in my attempt to acquire as much knowledge as possible, is I ended up learning by doing. I actually acquired this way of learning um, by uh, looking at other types of learners, right? So I, I looked at, I started researching artists and they ended up learning how to do pretty complex things by tracing it. I don't know if you're familiar with tracing paper, they'd trace it. And so that's what I did. I ended up going to where we trace good stuff. I went to GitHub. I went to Google and Amazon and Microsoft. They all had repositories full of complex experiences that I wanted to model. So I ended up just building off of those projects. And I built so many of those projects, developed the muscle memory to actually build the technical assets that I could then start to craft my own. And some of my best skills were really a collection of what I learned from all of those people. You know, I always say building, I built on the shoulders of these giants that were nice enough to open source their content so I could learn. And now I teach lots of people to do it the same way. I think it's a critical part of the path is that even if you're not a technologist, even if you're, you know, let's say you're in product or user experience, there's a way for you to get involved in voice technology and start actually doing something with this technology long before you're pushing something into production or 
developing it for a client, right? You can learn and acquire this knowledge by actually getting your fingers on a keyboard or having a conversation with your customers and talk about what voice might mean to them. And I've found a lot of really rewarding experiences come from that. There are so many great speakers today. I'm really excited. I'm friends with many of them and I am excited about what they'll talk to you about because it, it gives us a chance to think all about the holistic view of voice tech, who it can serve, how many people it could serve, but also how do we just reduce friction for those? I mean, I tend to because I have people in my very intimate life that need technology to work in this world. However, there's lots of people who would just like to be less frustrated with their technology and voice tech can be a huge catalyst for that as well. So have a great time today. It was my pleasure talking to you and uh, I look forward to connecting with you another time. That was Noelle Silver. And for this five minute break, we're gonna be talking about the creator economy. This is a clip from Legion on the creator economy taken from an episode of the Bankless podcast. And be altruistically engaged with the creator. So is this kind of like a an act too, would you say, Lee, of um, the creator economy that, that kind of crypto brings? So w- when we talk about the internet, we really think of the internet as sort of a, you know, a communication protocol, sort of an act one, but its business model, the business model of the internet is, is really heavily advertising based. Does this mm-hmm add another business model for creators, which is like things like we can sell our assets, we can organize capital in new ways. What is crypto exactly adding? And is this a whole new chapter for the creator economy, do you think? I think we're actually entering chapter four, not chapter two. So (laughs) I think there's a few chapters in the history of the creator economy over the last decade. Um, I would say creator economy, the first era was just the rise of social networking and UGC platforms. And when those first began, um, creators didn't really exist. Everyone was a creator, everyone was a user. They, they used these platforms just to communicate with each other. Um, and in this 1.0 era of the creator economy, we saw the rise of more influential users who other people started gravitating to, who, who they didn't know from the IRL world. Um, so you had the rise of this creator class on the internet. Uh, I think creator economy 2.0 era was the era in which these people who started to amass influence and fame online started to monetize that primarily through advertising. And then, so basically these creators became influential, but they were always the conduit for some other business to achieve its goals. Um, So brands would use them as a channel for advertising. And then I think creator economy 3.0 era was creators realizing, actually, I can become the business. I don't have to just shell someone else's product and become the face of some other brand. I can be the brand, I can be the product, and I can be a business in and of myself. Um, And then I think now we're entering creator economy 4.0 era, which is that the creators aren't just trying to um, create a business in and of themselves and like sell a product and like have this transactional relationship with their audience. I think they're actually blending the line between the audience and the creator and they're creating micro economies and richer ecosystems beyond just a a one dimensional monetization model. So Lee, do you have examples in all four of those acts? So when you were talking about those, my mind was calling to examples. I'm not sure these are accurate, but like act one felt sort of MySpace ish. And the act two is yeah, maybe more say, social media, Instagram. And then act three right. is maybe something a bit more like a, a sub stack platform. And then act mm-hmm. four is now where we are with, with crypto. Are those good yes. examples or what would you say? Yeah, I, I think that was really apt. Like act one is like the rise of UGC platforms, like MySpace, LiveJournal, Zanga, Facebook in its early days. Act two was Instagram, YouTube, like all of the platforms on which people are following in like a one direction manner it's not bi-directional follows and mutual friendships it's I want to follow someone they might not know that I exist um third era is like all of the current creator monetization products that exist in web 2 patreon substack etc and then four is all of the crypto creator platforms that are rising I really like how legion breaks down the creator economy's evolution 
into the four distinct stages where we went from just a pure communication platform to the rise of the creator class to having ad-based monetization where creators are earning for other companies to now kind of blending the line between audience and creator with micro micro economies and richer ecosystems beyond the one-dimensional monetization model. It's becoming more and more possible for creators to earn a living off of their art and to create an entire economy with their audience being a part of that creation process and a part of that wealth building. For the next 30 minutes, we've got another talk from Voice Talks. Let's get into it. You know, not surprisingly, at Google, we're, we're very excited about uh, voice. And I thought today what might be uh, useful would be to go through a few of the things that, as we've been at this for about three years now, a few of the things that we've learned about how users interact with voice, how it changes the way that they interact, and then some of the things that we're investing in uh, and excited about for the future, uh, especially as it relates to partners and developers uh, who want to build on, on the assistant. Oh. Here we go, thank you so much. All right, and there's lots of buttons on here, so we'll see if I push the right one. Okay, so that's me. Um, I'm the VP of Engineering at Google Assistant, uh, and I think what that means is I have like a pretty fun job of getting to see uh, a lot of this voice technology over the years develop uh, hand in hand with kind of our natural language uh, and dialogue understanding, Uh, and so it's, it's been really fun watching that develop. Now, this is a slide that I use internally all the time uh, just to try to explain even inside Google, like, what is this assistant thing? Uh, And you see our little tagline there, that it's a natural, uh, personal, and simple way to help users get things done. Uh, And, of course, that really starts from voice and a human-like interaction uh, where people can ask for what they want in the way that's natural to them and get it. And then in order to make voice work, and I think everyone in the room understands this, but that interaction needs to be personal and proactive and highly contextual, uh, where we really understand what is that user about, what, what do they mean by these words in the context they're in, in relation to the tasks or the conversation that we've been having. And the end result is something that we call orchestration. Uh, and all it really means is that, the, I always say the assistant doesn't really do anything. Uh, All it does is connect the user uh, to all the things that many of you build uh, and that other parts of Google build and so on and other devices uh, in order to get things done in the world or get information that, that the user wants. So one thing I'm really excited about, of course all of us, we work in this industry, we know how early it is. I can tell you I see all the warts uh, and all the things that don't work about that vision of being that natural uh, way to just ask for what you want and get things done. But in spite of that, the technology and the products have come along to a level that uh, we just crossed this milestone uh, recently of having 500 million monthly active users uh, on the Google Assistant. So for me, just even as like a computer scientist who's been working in this language and speech space for many years, it's pretty amazing actually to think about that, you know, 500 million people in over 30 different languages, 90 different countries around the world will have a conversation with Google using their voice over the next month to get something done, or at least to try to get something done uh, with the assistant. And so we're, we're I think the, the point of the statistic for me really is there's something there, right? This technology, which people have been working on for decades, we're reaching that place where normal human beings can actually use it to do something useful. And I mentioned that the assistant doesn't really do anything. It just connects to other people. This whole product wouldn't be possible at all without all the amazing partners that we have uh, that have really uh, stepped up and built voice experiences and integrations with the assistant that allow our users to get things done in the world through all kinds of finding information, all kinds of services that many of you and many others uh, create. So we're really thankful to have uh, a great set of partners who are on this journey with us. 
Now, one other way besides integrating with partners that Google's investing uh, in the voice space is something we call the Assistant Fund, uh, where we're investing in uh, startups that are in the space. Uh, and you see the, the, the 16 investments we've made so far around the tools uh, and vertical experiences. We're really excited about you know, the space as a whole and plan to do a lot more of, uh, of these kinds of investments as well to spur the, uh, to spur the ecosystem forward. Of course, internally, we've been investing in voice for many years. In fact, the slide kind of goes only back to 2008. It could come like over here somewhere uh, because a lot happened before 2008 uh, in voice technology at Google. But you see some of our milestones over the last 10 years, launching voice search, uh, our first uh, neural network and recurrent networks, uh, sequence networks, and so on. Uh, neural beam forming was the, the system we used to, uh, to localize who's speaking in a far field environment uh, without having to have a giant array of microphones, the network is actually able to learn from, uh, from the audio signal. Uh, and then WaveNet, uh, which allowed us to create uh, great voices, uh, our John Legend voice, for, as is the one that I hear at my house, um, and, and some of the other features. And then in 2019, uh, what we really focused on there were a set of announcements, uh, but the one that one that I think is really the highlight for me is around on-device, uh, where what we're seeing is that uh, we're starting to be able to create uh, neural models that can be shrunken down to actually run on a phone, on an inexpensive speaker or smart display, uh, and allow completely local processing of speech and language for kind of high confidence queries. And so going forward, I think what we see is that I think the world will evolve to more on-device uh, technology and maybe somewhat of a hybrid uh, approach where some computing will happen on the device, some things will be handled in the cloud. Uh, interestingly, that, I mean, that for me was the big exciting thing. The thing that got like the most applause on stage at I.O. was the next one, uh, which is simple stop, uh, which is just this thing that when the alarm's going off, you can just say stop. Uh, I will say it does get used every single day in my house. So it's a, it's a pretty life-changing uh, one as, as simple as it is, but it shows kind of the power of the on-device idea, right? That, that, that stop is just handled completely on the device. And over time, we're imagining Imagining that more and more commands in, with, in whatever context uh, the device is in might be, be becoming available. All right, so it's the beginning of the year. That means that uh, it was just Q4. And maybe for many of you, your company works like my company works, which is that at the end of the year, you do all your planning for the next year. So we've just been through our, our 2020 planning cycle. Uh, and as part of that, we sat down with Sundar, uh, who I'm sad to say does not look nearly that happy whenever I talk to him uh, as he looks in this photo. So if I could make him look that happy, boy, that would be good. Uh, but, uh, but we have had our, our kind of year-end uh, review of where we've been in 2019, where we're going in 2020. And I'm happy to share that, you know, I'm still up here representing Google, so I still have a job. That's good. Uh, but more seriously, Sundar and his team are really excited about voice and uh, continuing to invest here. Uh, it's, a, it's really a major strategic area for Google. Uh, I think that came across in I.O. last year with all the different voice announcements uh, that were there. Uh, and if anything, really, Sundar is very much in a mode of doubling down here. I think, I think we all see this, but uh, just w within Google, I think there really is a sense of, hey, voice, could voice be really the next way that people interact with information and services, right? Uh, and where, if you think we've kind of gone from, you know, a personal computer in, at my desk to a phone in my pocket, are we now getting to the age where we have ambient computing where uh, where voice becomes a primary interface? And so Sundar is, is very bullish on continuing to invest there. The other thing that we spent a lot of time on actually in our review with Sundar this year was around uh, the developer ecosystem for voice and what investments are we making? I'll talk about some of that uh, in order to really make it uh, continue to drive this ecosystem and help uh, our development partners uh, build great experiences for users and plug into the assistant. Uh, and that's, that's really a hot topic for, uh, for Sundar and his team. All right, so like I mentioned in the beginning, I thought what I might do with, with some of our time here, we've been at this, this uh, assistant thing for 
about three and a half years, I guess, we've been in the marketplace now. Uh, and I thought it would be interesting to go through some of the things that we've seen around how vo a voice interaction, maybe it feels different or looks different in terms of how users uh, use it than what we see with search and our other products. So some of our, our key learnings, uh, let me just start with this one. One thing that we see very in a very marked way is voice is really about action. Uh, you know, uh, if this this what's on the screen here is just really a snippet of some of our of, of the queries that that people give us, and you see how many of these things are really commands to do something, not just find information. Uh, and this is, of course, very different from what we see, for example, in the Google search box or an in input to other Google products, uh, where voice is really somehow calling people to calling users to move to this state where they are commanding and asking for what they want, whether it's calling mom, taking a screenshot, sending Lily a message, all these kinds of things uh, show up as, as users are about action. Now, I don't have like a deep theory of why this is. I'll tell you my armchair psychologist theory is like, if you let people talk to you, then they just want to tell you what to do. I don't know. At least in my life, I have some people like that. I don't know if any of you do. But, but uh, I think when we open the mic, people start to do that. And so that's, that's I think, a big opportunity uh, for us as developers uh, to be able to provide those actions and, and fulfill what users are looking for. A second learning uh, is that voice really calls for conversationality. Uh, what we see is that users, when the, you have that open microphone, they don't speak, for example, in keywordese, Googleese. They don't use, you know, they don't stick to some bounds of something you could write down in a regular expression, some nice uh, way to say things. They say things all sorts of different ways. I like the example that, that's here. Maybe you could say, what's what, like one of the simplest things that one of these voice assistants does? Well, it sets an alarm. Well, of course, that's easy. Set an alarm for 6 a.m. That must be what people say. Well, in fact, what we see with the assistant is, even in just in English, people use over 3,000 distinct syntactic variants uh, in order to, uh, to set the alarm. In fact, that number's probably a little old. It's probably even more than that. And you see some of the ones here. The one I like just up in the corner there. Hey, I have a flight to catch. Wake me up at 6. Right? And it's like, I'm not sure why the, this person decided to tell us about their flight, but somehow they, they expect us to understand that, yeah, the flight part, that's just commentary, but you better wake me up at six. That's the actual command. Uh, and so we're expected to understand that. Uh, and what we're seeing that's really exciting for me is as the product, as, as speech recognition and language understanding improve, people get more daring and they, they, they begin to vary how they talk, expect multi-step conversation and so on. So voice calls for action uh, and it demands conversationality. A third learning is that uh, voice really becomes a part of people's daily routine uh, in a really interesting way. And this graph is showing kind of comparing uh, our home uh, usage to our phone usage. And you see that in the home, in the morning, you have a huge spike of the things that people need to get ready for their day. So productivity is kind of our word for like the calendar, your commute, those kinds of questions. Uh, people want to hear the news in the morning. People ask about how the weather is going to be. You see a big spike in those kinds of things. And then throughout the day, we see the phone usage kind of grow. Uh, and towards the end of the workday, you see communications and local. And I, you can just imagine it's people, you know, saying to their, you know, communicating with friends or family, hey, I'm on my way home or I'm on my way to meet you somewhere. Maybe I'm headed out after work. And so we see a big spike in local and navigation uh, as people go to wherever they're headed uh, at the end of the workday. And then as people get back home in the evening, you see the spike in media where people are now at home, they're ready to relax, and they're asking to hear their favorite playlist, to continue to watch their video, and so on. Um, so what, what gets us excited about this is that you know, people really discover the things that are important to them through the day, uh, and voice is an easy way for them to use it across the different, uh, the different modalities and surfaces that we have. And so it becomes a part of their daily life in a really interesting way. And then the last one here I wanted to call is just the universality of voice. You know, we're all, we've all been in this technology world for a while probably, and we've all seen that when a new technology comes, you know, the typical thing is that the kind of people, let's just say, that start to adopt that technology early on, maybe are people like us in this room. The kind of people who would show up at CES, right? Sorry, no offense, nerds, okay? 
to, would kind of start to take the technology. Uh, and then over time, it becomes more and more mainstream. One thing we've been really fascinated to see with voice is that it hasn't really followed that same pattern from what we can see. And in fact, really from the beginning, we're seeing a huge amount of adop adoption across age groups, across families, across genders, across, uh, across uh, locations and languages in the world. The picture here is, is to remind me to say that just as one example, uh, in India, we've seen incredible growth of use of voice uh, as many new users come online for the first time. And for many of those users, their first connected device is uh, a low-end kind of phone, uh, maybe what we call a feature phone. But a lot of those feature phones come with a big voice button in the middle. Uh, and so those users are learning from the beginning, oh, voice is actually the interface to computing and to, and to, to apps and services, uh, and sort of thinking that way from the very start of their, of, their connected, of their connected usage. So voice brings users to do actions. They expect it to be conversational. Uh, it's universal. Um, and so, so we're excited about these properties of voice uh, that we see as a little bit different from other apps and things that we've built. Okay, so if those are the learnings of the last, uh, whatever it is, three and a half years that we've been, that we've been at this, uh, I wanted to think a little bit about, okay, well, like, what are we gonna learn next? Kind of what, we're at the beginning of 2020, what are, what are some of the things that, uh, that we're kind of uh, seeing that we think will change this going forward, in particular around how to develop for voice. And so I wanted to call out uh, a couple things here. The first one is that, uh, you know, speakers can be quite limited, uh, something without a screen. We think that screens, whether it's on phones, smart displays, uh, will begin to change what uh, experiences we can create for users with voice. Secondly, uh, we're seeing as you start to have screens that a lot of the things that people have already built, uh, websites, applications, can be voice enabled versus starting from scratch uh, to build a voice experience. And third is kind of the there's no magic. Uh, discovering and helping users discover those voice capabilities is going to require investment, both from uh, platforms like Google and from all of you as you're as you're creating those things for your users. So let's just walk through through each of those. The first one here: screens will change everything. And one one. Uh, thing that we were, I'll be honest, a little bit surprised by as we started to, uh, to launch our smart displays uh, and users started using them is that users, tip the typical interaction we'll see is that users, of course, start from voice and get into some experience by starting from voice. But then as you see this stat there, about half the time, they will then continue on with an experience that uh, mixes voice and touch. Uh, and we found that pretty interesting, right? I think it's a big opportunity for us as we think about how we develop great voice experiences that you have an opportunity that's multimodal, um, where you have a visual, you have touch, and you have voice. And I call it an opportunity because I think, uh, you know, as much as we love speakers, speakers are great, uh, but the experience that you can have purely in a vocal domain is fairly limited, right? And so this really opens up, I think, new possibilities. And we're beginning to see some developers take advantage of this. Let me just give you a couple examples. Uh, so we, we have a development uh, system called Canvas that allows you to build on essentially an HTML-based uh, experience that, that is voice-enabled for a smart display. And Disney took this and built a, uh, as you can see there, a read-along and kind of character-based interaction for Frozen 2. Uh, they use the voices and the songs from, uh, from this, and they've you know, promoted this fairly, fairly uh, aggressively with uh, their cafe and so on. Uh, and the result is that this is actually one of the very top uh, Google Assistant actions in Japan where they've done this. Uh, so users are pretty delighted by this uh, ability to bring the frozen uh, uh, experience interactively and hear stories and so on um, using this multimodal capability. Here's another example. It's called the 3% Challenge built by Dopio. Uh, there's a hit, hit Netflix show here, and this thing is an experience uh, that's an interactive prequel uh, kind of storyline to the show uh, with you know, beautiful visuals, interactivity with other players, and so on. Uh, and again, just a, a richer kind of experience than you can create with voice alone. So we think we're going to see a lot more of that in 2020 uh, and encourage you to kind of think about uh, how to, those multimodal experiences uh, can, reach user, can reach your users. All right, 
Second, second uh, I don't know what it is, prediction for 2020, uh, or a thing that we're investing in, is once you have that visual piece, we think it's a lot uh, more possible to start from the great things that you've already built. Um, for many of you you're, and many, many developers, right, of course your company has uh, you know, things like a mobile website, a mobile app, a, a desktop website, all those things. Um, and in some sense, we've come along as the voice, these voice platforms that said, so far we've kind of said, yeah, that's great that you had that thing. Now please like start over and learn this new thing and build these new things. Now that's fine. I'm not, we're gonna keep, please keep building new things. Uh, but also we've, we've been thinking a lot about and starting, just starting the journey of how can we voice enable uh, the websites and apps that you have. So just to give a couple examples, one really nice example for me actually is the recipe experience on smart displays. I don't know. Uh, if many of you have used this, but a lot the, we have a smart display in our kitchen. Uh, this actually gets used a lot in my in my house. And the way that this this kind of rich recipe experience happens on on the Google smart displays is basically the web uh, based versions of the recipes have markup of various kinds in them around the steps uh, and the ingredients and so on. And we're basically taking that markup and reformatting and optimizing the experience for the smart display user. Uh, and even doing things like step-by-step step, uh, step step directions and so on that people can hear verbally while their hands are busy and they're cooking. Uh, but really without a huge amount of new development from our recipe partners. Uh, and so I think that's a pattern that uh, we'd love to expand on is if you're a content publisher, we're looking at what are some ways that we can make your content really shine in people's living rooms, people's uh, kitchens as, as they're using these devices. Now an example that goes a step further uh, is we're beginning to look at how the assistant can actually automate more transactional things that uh, exist on the web uh, as the assistant maybe has things like my address, my payment credential, and so on, can we actually help users step through the process in this example, for example, of, of buying movie tickets at Fandango? Uh, and this is a, a technology that we talked about at Google I.O. We call it Duplex on the Web. So we have Duplex, our, our system that makes phone calls for users. This is sort of a similar idea, but of automating the steps uh, of doing that transaction on a website. Uh, and, the re and partners like Fandango are very excited about this because what they're seeing is that the conversion rate from the kind of the beginning of that flow uh, through, in this case, the purchasing tickets, we actually see a pretty nice uplift through this automation of getting people through that flow. Uh, and so that's where uh, the partners who, who we've started with here get pretty excited because you know, you, all of you know how much work people put into optimizing those flows to get those conversions to happen, and this is another tool that helps them do that. Then I'll talk about the app side, uh, and this is this is something that we're really just at the beginning of, but uh, trying to work on how can we provide a deep linkage into the right spot in your app uh, in order to make something happen. Uh, and you'll see us rolling this out across more and more domains and more and more uh, kinds of interactions over time. But again, trying to at least voice enable that first step into your app uh, and get you to the right spot. So in this example, right, I can say, hey, order a signature latte from Dunkin' Donuts, uh, and I go right to the kind of ordering page with the right thing in my, uh, in my cart, and I can complete my order. Now, I thought it'd be cool to do this as like a live demo for all of you, uh, but then we realized that like bringing in 300 lattes might be a little awkward. Uh, so instead we brought in 300 donuts. They're here in the back, so they're, they're, they're unveiled. The unveiling of the donuts, very exciting. So please, uh, please go back and grab a donut when you get a chance. All right. So we've talked about uh, building on what you already have, the fact that screens are really gonna provide new opportunities to reach users. The third one I thought I'd call out here uh, is that discoverability is not a solved problem. I, I would like to tell you that after that meeting with Sundar, I kind of wandered out of his office and under the floorboards I found some magic dust uh, and we dumped that magic dust on our product and now discoverability is a solved problem and your users magically know what to say. I didn't find the dust, I'm still looking for it. If any of you have it, please give it to me so we can do that. But 
the reality is discoverability is going to continue to take an investment from us uh, in terms of providing the hooks that allow discoverability and from you as you build things and then market those things to your users to help them understand what capability uh, is there. Now, one, one of the hooks that we're uh, providing here is, link, is just simply linking on the phone into the action. Uh, so in this example, right, there's a link that uh, shows up in the website. You see this little assistant button there. And when the user taps that, it leads into the action that this publisher has created within the Google Assistant. Uh, so just a simple idea. I, I guess I think of it a little bit like, you know, if you have a website, a lot of websites use their website to promote downloading their app. This is a little bit of a similar kind of idea. You're at the website. Hey, can we can uh, use that to make users aware of what they can do within the assistant? Now, once you have that, obviously you can do things like uh, promote those things within your social uh, within your social domain. So, uh, in this example, uh, this is one that that is live right now and getting a lot of traffic for us. Actually, is around NBA All Star voting, uh, and you know, as the NBA does things like tweet out. Uh, you know that that people can vote. They can now tweet links that lead directly into that into the the uh, interactive voting experience that that they've created uh, inside of the Google Assistant. Uh, unfortunately, I live where the Warriors play, so I don't know who to vote for this year. Uh, I guess I'll just vote for LeBron, like everyone else. But all right, so. And then the last one I'll just call out here is that we're continuing to, to work on improving uh, the, uh, the experience within the various directors, directories of, of actions that we have where users come to figure out uh, what, the, what the assistant can do for them. Uh, this is showing the desktop version. We also have a version that links from the assistant experience in mobile uh, that gets a fair amount of traffic. Uh, and again, just really trying to make it uh, easy for people to know what this microphone can do for them uh, and really highlight uh, the kinds of actions that, that all of you are creating. All right, so, so I know a good talk I've had all the same coaching all of you have had. I know a good talk is supposed to have like three points at most, uh, but I thought, you know, we're here in Las Vegas. Seven's a lucky number, so I'm gonna have seven points. Okay, so, so just to review them, we're super excited about voice because we see that it produces a different kind of behavior in users uh, that gives it a real opportunity to do something new for users. It's about they call for actions, they expect conversationality, voice starts to get knitted into their daily routines, and we see it that it's universal across different kinds of users than we see typically with an early technology. And so all those things get us excited. And then in 2020, we think that screens provide a great opportunity to make a richer uh, engagement with users. Uh, you can, it opens up the opportunity to start to voice enable the great assets you already have. And we need to work together as a community to keep working, pounding away on discoverability uh, and the hooks that we need to create that. All right, so the one other message I wanna uh, leave you with is that one thing we're feeling is that as, as one of the uh, platforms in this space, we're really working to make ourselves more available to this community uh, and, uh, and really hear what people are looking for, uh, be responsive to that. Uh, and to talk about that, I'm gonna invite Danny, who's our, our partner's lead, uh, to talk about some of the ways we're gonna try to be more available to you. Thank you, Scott. Hey everybody, um, my name is Danny Bernstein and I'm really excited to be able to talk to you all today. Um, if Scott is the computer scientist working on Google Assistant, I may be a little bit more of the relationship scientist. Um, and, and so, you know, it's, it's just great to have this group of people who are thinking about voice, who are thinking about this nascent space together in one room. And we all know that you actually had to uh, spend a little bit more money to be here. Uh, and, uh, oops. We lost having a little presentation issue. Something about the smart. I'm not providing the smart audio part. It sounds very smart, uh, but that's. I think that's probably Joel from NPR is doing that. Joel probably came in here somewhere. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll I'll distract you with some really exciting little information while you while they're bringing up the right presentation. Um, we know it was an investment for you to be here, and so one of the things we wanted to do is actually have you uh, go home with a Google device. 
So within the next couple of hours, the Google Nest Hub, our, our seven inch smart display, we're going to have one for each of you to take home today. So just wanted to mention that. Um, I can do this without slides. So as I said, my, my name is Danny. Um, I've been at Google for over seven years. I've been working on the Google Assistant for three and a half years. And like many of you in the room, you know, I've really kind of dedicated at this point my career to this nascent space. And, and it, you know, we're in Las Vegas. I'm all in on voice. And, and I'm super passionate about this. I know many of you are as well. And, and my team uh, in the partnerships uh, landscape at Google, we work with large companies like Disney and Starbucks. We also work with emerging companies in this space uh, like Volley, like, like Matchbox, um, and, and then also agencies like Rain and Nook I, I've seen here today. And so we kind of cover that whole landscape. We also are working on um, voice integrations, like these full NN voice integrations, like the Frozen example you saw. And we're also working on these, these newer kind of integrations that take advantage or plug into your existing web and, and app. And, and so we kind of cover different spectrums, large and small, native and existing. And, and one of the things we realized um, last year was that we had to be much more out in the community. And, and there are a couple of catalysts for this. And one of the catalysts for this is that we're not that new of a product anymore. We've been in the market now for over three years. And so we have a little bit of a better sense of what it means to build a digital assistant. For our final three-minute break, here's an update on Alexa for Musicians, combining Web3 blockchain with voice-first technologies. We've done it. New smart contract is now deployed on the Polygon testnet. The contract is called Alexa for Musicians. And what we were able to get done took us about 60 minutes. We published a new smart contract called Alexa for Musicians using Ethereum's Remix IDE. Inside of that smart contract, there is a global variable called musicians, which contains a mapping of every single musician's musician to their ID. We also created a public function called create new musician. Anybody in the world can contact that on the Polygon smart, uh, on the Polygon blockchain. And then when you contact that function, you just pass in one parameter of the name of the musician. That then adds the musician to the Polygon blockchain. Um, Polygon's built on top of Ethereum, so everything eventually gets written back to Ethereum blockchain as the main base layer for like settlement of contracts. We then made a couple test charges where we transacted on that blockchain and added a couple musicians using the smart contract to the Mumbai testnet. Next up, we need to create a front-end interface that makes it easy for anyone to transact. I think for now, instead of adding it directly to the Alexa for Musicians website, I may just add it to a very basic HTML page. I think I might just open up an index.html, initialize a new Firebase hosting project, create an index.html, add in the functionality there, and then deploy that to a new, uh, a new hosting environment in Firebase Hosting so that I can share it with the team. I want to make it simple, but I also want to keep it separated from any production. Like on the blockchain side, I published it on a testnet so that these transactions don't actually cost me any real money. Um, and it's not on any production blockchain. It's all on a testnet. And I want to do the same thing for integrating the Web3.js frontend. We don't want to move too fast and publish it directly to alexaformusicians.com. We want to deploy it on a very simple website because I've never actually worked with Web3.js before. Deploy that so that we can test it and see how it works and imagine the workflow more. And then once we're able to see the full end-to-end -end process, front-end and back-end interacting, then we can start deploying things onto main chains and onto production environments. That's it for this episode. As you continue to build the creator economy, find your voice.